Welcome to the What We Talked About in Class podcast, brought to you from the campus of Wayne Community College in Goldsboro, North Carolina, sponsored by the Foundation of Wayne Community College. So chapter 15 is on managing teams, and I'm just going to dive into it and kind of, we got into it briefly on Friday, as I mentioned, but we didn't really dive deep because of the technology issues we were having. So um, once again, the learning outcomes is what is the benefit of working in teams and what makes teams effective? How do teams develop over time? What are some key considerations in managing teams? What are the benefits of conflict for a team? How does team diversity enhance decision-making and problem-solving? And what are some challenges and best practices for managing and working with multicultural teams? So um, we talked about this, this discipline of teams. It's an article. It's defined as people organized to function cooperatively, cooperatively as a group. That's what a team represents. These five elements include common commitment and purpose, specific performance goals, complementary skills, meaning people know how to do what's required for the job, Commitment to how the work gets done and mutual accountability. Those are the five magic ingredients to having a dynamic and effective team. Um, it's not all inclusive. That is just, uh, according to this article, what it takes to make a team work well. And so just to elaborate a little bit on these common commitments, are we all going for the same thing? You know, if you've got a, a team sport, generally the team is there to work together to function well. They understand that we practice in order to enhance our performance on the field in order to win the game and that's 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 an objective and in the business world we plan and prepare in order to be able to execute in providing a good or service to the public or to our, our customer and in order to have revenues sales and or profit so that's that's kind of the same mentality that you go through and it once again i talk about those parallels between the personal life and the business life uh, in your personal life, whatever personal goals that you have, it's the same thing of common commitment and a purpose. Specific performance goals. Um, why do you think it's important to be specific? Any ideas? Maybe just to like not waste your time on Right. So if it's specific, you're focused. Like, uh, let me give you an example. Let's say that I want to lose weight, so I say lose weight's my goal. Well, one pound is a weight loss, right? Or a half pound is a weight loss. But if I say I want to lose 10 pounds, that's a specific goal to go towards. And I can take measurements and realize that uh, there is being progress made toward that goal or not. And so it needs to be specific. And there's actually goals called SMART goals, specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time-bound. And time-bound means that you put a timeline on that as well. So if I say I want to lose 10 pounds, but I don't put a time limit on it, I could take 10 years to lose 10 pounds, right? But if I say I want to lose 10 pounds in two months, that is something more achievable. Um, And actually on that note, when I talked to my doctor about weight loss in the past year, he said that a healthy weight loss is something between one to two pounds a week. So it goes back to that realistic part of SMART goals. If I said 10 pounds in one week, that's not realistic. You know, that's not attainable. It could be, but it's not healthy. It's not attainable. But if I said 10 pounds in two months, well, the doctor said one to two pounds a week, so eight weeks, that's probably achievable. So if I just lost one pound a week, after eight weeks, I'd be at eight pounds. And if I lost two pounds, I'd be at 16. So that seems to be a realistic goal. 
why do you think it's important for managers to give their people realistic goals? Because of the outcome, right? So if I give you a goal that's, that's unrealistic, you know, if I say um, a normal business schedule will produce 50 of these things, and if you come in today and say, I need you to produce 350, right out of the gate you think, this cannot be done, I'm not going to do it, I quit. You know, or, you know, why would I set myself up for failure? You know, it's not, you're not leading to a realistic outcome. And so you want to keep things bound in reality, time-bound, realistic, attainable. Uh, those are smart goals. Complementary skills, meaning that um, my wife and I, we are different people, and we complement each other well. I'm very logical, methodical. I overthink things. You know, I'm a teacher. This is what I do. But she's very pragmatic, meaning and rational, and has common sense, and she doesn't look through things the lens of the logic and methodology that I threw where I overthink things. She's very pragmatic. And so that balances me out, right? Because I can, I can have this big construct and she says, just do this and be quiet and move on, you know, like, yeah. And so complementary skills, you know, uh, I'm good at planning and organizing. She's good at, uh, you know, making sure that the details for like the kids clothes are done and things like that, you know, like, I'm good at, like, the bigger picture stuff, and she's good at the detail stuff. And so uh, we complement each other well. And in the, in the sports analogy, the quarterback knows what needs to be done by every player, and every player has that specific skill set. You know, you've got a running back that's good at sprinting and getting quick bursts of, of uh, energy and quick bursts of speed, whereas a, a linebacker is good at defending. That's what they're good at. Compliments, um, commitment to how the work gets done, making sure it's done well. And then mutual accountability. That word accountability comes up a lot in the workplace, and it means that we are uh, holding people accountable to do their job well. And that mutual accountability comes from teams. Like, I want to do a good job not only to protect myself and my job, but also to not disappoint my team. You know, like, if I do a good job, it helps my students, it helps me, it helps the team, it helps the institution, it helps everybody. So um, there's an accountability there. If I do a bad job, it doesn't, doesn't just affect me. It affects my students. Uh, it affects, you know, the institution. It affects my team. It's a bad thing for everybody. So there is an accountability there. So emotional intelligence is a very important aspect of quality teamwork. Collaboration is bringing together a team of experts from across business that um, would seem to be the best practice in any situation. And so we also mentioned this on Friday, eight success factors for having strong collaboration skills, signature relationship practices. This is just a way of, a fancy way of saying doing quality relationship practices. And part of that is what we do in here. Um, my signature relationship practice in my classroom is talking to you guys about your weekend or what's going on in your, at work or what's going on, you know, that's interesting, exciting, new. What have you seen that's good lately to watch on streaming services? Those are relationship practices that I use with students to try to build rapport, to try to build trust, to try to increase our communication with each other. And so what I actually am doing in my classroom is actually a management technique. And it's kind of like um, the head fake, uh, which is uh, I'm actually doing that without telling you that I'm, that's what I'm doing. Uh, and it's all about relationship building, trust building, because if you trust me and we have a better rapport, 
your outcome in this class will probably be better because you'll be more interested and more connected. Um, I took history in high school. I hated history in high school. And the reason I hated it wasn't because I hated history. I didn't like the instructor. The instructor was um, not a nice person. Let's just say that. Just a really grumpy teacher. And so when I got to college, though, I had to take history again. Here I go. I'm thinking, God, history is probably going to be miserable again. But I loved history in college. I had a great I – I did so much better and my outcomes, I actually really worked hard in history class because I loved the teacher. Teacher was such a knowledgeable person. They, had, they, were, they were a true history buff. They actually had read the textbook, but they read all the books the textbook talked about. They were really into it. And they knew all the detailed stories that they would bring out, and it was just fascinating to me. And so when I had to take an exam for history, I studied like, all these, this, I would like write out all these study notes to study for the exams and I would like nail the exam. And the teacher was so happy with the outcome because they knew that I was enjoying the class. And so it, it makes a difference. And so the same thing's true in management. If I go to work, I can say, man, I hate my job, but is it that I hate the job or I hate the, uh, the work conditions that I'm in and I don't like the management team? Because a manager can make or break a work situation. A manager, a good manager can make a bad work environment better, and a bad manager can make a great work environment terrible. Do you agree with that? So you can get your dream job doing exactly what you plan to do, but if you've got the wrong management team in place, it can be pretty miserable. You know, because they, uh, one, one thing that I continually stress to students is that people need to work on people skills. It's all about people. You know, it's all about connecting with individuals and encouraging people and supporting people. And if you do that and people feel like they're supported and encouraged, the outcomes are going to be better. They're going to work harder. They're going to have less absenteeism. They're going to have less turnover. Uh, you know, and they will value you know, that job. They will say, I feel supported here. My wife, she's worked several places over her career, and she finally got to a place where she feels like she's supported, that they trust her, and there's this... Uh, mutual respect, and that's a big thing. It really is. Uh, it, it shouldn't surprise me, but it does, the amount of disrespect and unprofessionalism in the business environment. Uh, it, it shouldn't surprise me, but it does because I work to encourage people to be respectful of others, to have quality relationships, to have respect and good communication. Uh, but so many people are, it's just like, it's like the Hunger Games. You're just trying to survive, you know. Uh, and, you know, you'll see it manifest as you go through your careers. You'll see good working environments and bad working environments. And uh, if you're in a bad working environment where you dread to go to work every day and you feel like it's hostile and not supportive, go ahead and start looking for something else. You know, like you're not bound to that job. You know, like you're not bound to stay there for years. Just go ahead and start finding something else. It may, may not be convenient to do that. But you got to do what you got to do. You got to look out for yourself. Nobody else is looking out for your health and happiness and well-being. So, got to do that. Role models of collaboration among ex executives. This is back to that success factors. Establishing a gift culture in which managers mentor employees. That's also huge. You know, I've had a, a big diversity of management uh, in my my backgrounds. As far as I've had good managers, I've had great managers, I've had horrible managers, and the great managers. Um, I felt like respected me as an individual and they supported me as an individual. And that is just, that's an intangible that is extremely valuable because it makes your whole life feel better. If you feel insecure in your work, like you could get fired or your boss doesn't respect you or appreciate you, 
it it is detrimental to your whole life. You go home and you worry about, you know, like when I was at Walmart, as an example, I felt like I wasn't respected. I felt like that I could lose my job. You know, they had a very fire happy culture there where they would fire you for with or without cause. I mean, so uh, yeah, it, it really was not a good place for me because I felt insecure. You know, I felt like because my job goes away, you know, outside of my wanting that to happen then I'm going to have to scramble and figure something out. So um, a sense of community. This is also important, you know, in the classroom. That's one thing I try to do in the classroom as well is make sure we feel like we are a group that, you know, can support each other and uh, everybody feels welcome. Uh, ambidextrous leaders, good at task and people, uh, leadership, meaning that they can kind of uh, juggle. They're very good at that. Good use of heritage relationships and role clarity and talk ambiguity, meaning that, People know what their responsibilities are, and uh, there's no ambiguity. It's, it's clarity. We want things to be clear and have, have people have a good understanding. I don't like secrecy in organizations. I think that's toxic because people assume the worst, right? We had this thing in Walmart where people would go into the management office and close the door, and then you would see associates do this. They would walk by the door. They walk by the door, they'd sit slow. Yeah. And look at it. <laughs> Like, what are they talking about? Are they talking about me? What are they, I saw her look at me. What does that mean? Are they talking about me? You know, and then what happens is when you see that, then you go and tell every other associate, hey, the managers are in there. They're talking. Are they talking about you? Are they talking about me? What are they talking about? You know, are we going to get hours cut back? Are they going to cut benefit? What, what are they going to do? And so, like, it just starts the, the, the grapevine and the rumor mill starts to kick in. Secrecy is toxic. And so... Um, I, had, I had that culture, and I also had a culture where I had another manager that would tell us everything. He, he would come back from me and say, guys, I'm really not supposed to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you what happened. <laughs> and they would just drop everything on the table. And you know what? He treated us like adults, and I appreciated that. And the secrets weren't that secret anyway. You know, there's this, there's this thing about information that's like, oh, we're going to have the secret, and we're not going to tell anybody but at, when you finally find out what the secret was, you're like, that was the secret, really? It's like, why, why was that such a big deal? You know, because what you find out is that 95% of employees don't care anyway. You know, like, okay, that's whatever. You know, it's like, do what you do. So, yeah, I'm very much against secrecy. I like clarity. I like transparency. I like a lot of communication. I like people to feel like they know where they stand with me and with the organization. So that's a good thing to do as a manager. And so this is kind of where we left off on Friday. We talked about forming, storming, norming, performing, and adjourning. And it looks kind of like this if you draw a chart. Um, and so forming, storming, uh, norming, performing, and then adjourning. And so, and then your decline. So it's kind of like, it looks almost like an adoption curve. Um, an adoption curve is where people start to buy a product and then it goes through a spike of adoption, and then it plateaus and then declines. And so this is what teams look like as well, too. You know, over time, they do that. All right, and here we go. This is the graphic of that uh, adoption curve. And so and we see this performance curve right here. Over time, you reach this maximum of effectiveness where everybody is doing well and doing what we're supposed to but just like the hierarchy of needs and that self-actualization, it's temporary. Because <clears throat> what ultimately happens is people get promoted or they leave and go to another company or 
Uh, there's a big cultural shift in the company, and things get get mixed up. And now we've got to reform. You know, go through that storming forming again. You know, <laughs> so yeah, it's 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 a perpetual cycle. And so there's an article that came out called "Manager Teams" from Linda Hill, Harvard Business Review, and she discussed uh, managing team means and managing paradox. A paradox exists in the fact that teams have both individual and collective identities and goals. <clears throat> this is the dilemma or paradox. What my personal goals are, they are in alignment with the team goals, but I still have individual goals that I look out for, you know. And so that, how do we manage those two things? Each individual has goals and ideas as to what he or she wants to accomplish on the project and one's career and in life. <clears throat> this team itself, of course, has goals and success metrics that need to be met in order to be successful. Sometimes these can be in conflict with each, uh, conflict with each other. Some other uh, paradoxes include fostering support and confrontation among team members, focusing on performance and learning and development. Yeah, that's a big one. So you have to go through training almost everywhere these days. Uh, how, much, how, much, how many hours of training do you think you had to do at Starbucks? Yeah, just throw a number on it. What you say, 20? 10? Was it one shift that you had to watch all the videos? How many? Hours? Yeah. So 15 hours, we'll say. What's that? I couldn't hear. It lasted one week? Okay, I got you. Yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> almost everywhere I've been, there's a learning curve. When I first started in the car business years ago now, I had to watch videos for several days in a row. Just It was all about product presentation and sales and things like that. And then when I went to Walmart, I had a 16-week management training program I had to go through. 16 weeks, so four months. It, you met with a group of uh, eight people in a classroom. We had a, a mentor or coach who was a very busy person. <laughs> he, he was trying to help us and manage his business. Uh, his name was Bruce. But, you know, that was a long training process, and we went through a lot of stuff to, to, to learn uh, how to be assistant managers at Walmart. Um, but where, the thing is is that beyond that 16 weeks, there's perpetual learnings we had to do. We went to SurfSafe certifications. We did a lot of computer-based learning modules. And you have to balance that between actual performance you know like i'm trying to get these my job done but i actually having to learn all this other stuff that you got me focusing on so that's a that's a paradox <clears throat> balancing managerial authority and team member discretion and autonomy that's something we talked about quite a bit so you know managers have a certain about amount of authority that's imbued in them they've given them they're legitimate authority figures but if you flex that authority and say i'm the boss you do what i say because i say so People don't like that, right? That, I mean, once again, we're going back to people are adults. People are intelligent. They know things. They're not children. And so, like, you have to be respectful in how you talk to people. You can, you can always be respectful to people, even if you have to give critical feedback. You know, like, just because, like, somebody's not performing well doesn't mean that you have to devastate them, you know. You should have enough respect to say, if somebody, if I find out somebody's not performing well, one of the things I would do would be, saying, we've noticed there's some performance issues on this. Is there something we can help you with to help that outcome? Because it's impacting the team. And that's a, 
not a devastating. I, that's one way to say it. Another way to say it, hey, I've been watching you and you're terrible. You must be a terrible person because you're a terrible employee. That's not, you know, <clears throat> people, like if, if a boss ever told me that, that would be devastating, right? I mean, like, especially when I believe that I work to put out quality outputs. So you have to understand that everybody's perception is different. What one person perceives as quality outputs, another that might may not be the standard the company's looking at. So in their mind, they may be thinking, hey, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. What, what am, what's wrong with that? You know, nobody's ever told me that I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And that brings me to another point is that managers like to wait to address problems instead of addressing them directly. They should always address problems immediately because if you wait, that performance is not going to improve on its own, right? Because there's no feedback loop. And so you've got to say, hey, we're noticing this issue, like, or and, and still, before it becomes an issue and affects morale and affects outcomes, you should say, uh, I noticed this. What if we change this a little bit to make it a little better outcome and get in line with this? If you do that a little along the way, instead of waiting till they blow it massively and then addressing it, yeah, I consider an employee dropping the ball in a major way that's been known about, that's the manager's fault, not the employee's fault, because the manager should have said, hey, you know, I've, you've been doing this for a while, obviously, and I didn't say anything, right? So uh, when you have a boat, the captain of the boat is solely responsible for what happens. It doesn't matter if there's a problem with an employee on the boat, the captain should have been on top of that and said, you know, it's, that's the captain's responsibility. So as a manager, the book stops with you. When the owners or the shareholders, when they point the finger, it's not going to be that employee. They're going to point it at management. Say, why didn't you guys handle this, you know? <laughs> so balancing the triangle of relationships, managers, teams, and individual. That's another paradox. All right. And this is just a graphic of that individual manager and teams, triangle of relationships. Um, as an individual, you, you are a part of a team, and you do have a manager dynamic. And so these are things that constantly have to be managed. And so let's talk about boundaries. Um, my, <laughs> my friend, Bill Raboli, has anybody taken this class in psychology? Did you enjoy his class? Um, he teaches me a lot about psychology, and I've talked to him for years about the dynamics of relationships. And I believe I know it, but I'm going to see if I can get it because it's rules, roles, boundaries, norms, and communications. Um, I believe, well, no, rules, roles, boundaries, power, and communication. That's the five dynamics of relationships. And so you have to respect the boundaries of others, but you also have to establish your own boundaries, right? So boundaries are, they could be, um, physical boundaries, like we all have this fear of like comfort, right? So I'm not going to do this, but if but Raboli does this in his class, I don't have enough people in here and I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable, but he'll get two students up and he'll make them start walking towards each other. Have you seen this example before? In Raboli's class? Okay. Well, he'll have two students stand up and they'll start walking face to face towards each other and they'll keep going and they'll keep going and they'll keep going until they get really close and you could feel it like it feels weird it, just looking at it. It's like these two people getting really close to each other. And like that, the reason why it feels weird, even me thinking about two people's face-to-face getting that close together, it feels weird, right, just thinking about it. It's because we have boundaries that we've established, you know, that I'm not going to come into your personal space. You know, we have this invisible boundary around us that if somebody is right upon us, like my instinct is to step back a little bit, Right. 
We have this invisible barrier around us. So that's a boundary that's a physical boundary that people establish, but there's also psychological boundaries. Like I asked you guys about, you know, what you ate. I asked you guys about how was work this weekend or something you watched that you thought was interesting. Those are boundaries that I'm establishing from a uh, etiquette standpoint. I don't want to ask, you know, tell me about your family or tell me about your religion or tell me about your politics. Those are taboo boundaries that might, might make somebody feel uncomfortable, right? And so my goal as a teacher and as a manager is not to make people feel uncomfortable. I want people to feel comfortable and safe in this environment. And so as you guys become managers, you have to think about those boundaries and how can I respect individuals to give them the space uh, to not only have that physical space, but their psychological space uh, and respect that boundary. So, so the space between the team and the external forces, stakeholders and pressures, these are boundaries, is a delicate balance of strategy, stakeholder management, and organizational behavior. The team manager must serve in part as a buffer to these external factors so they don't derail or distract the team from its goals. There are many sources of conflict for a team, whether it's due to a communication breakdown competing views or goals, power struggles, or conflicts between different personalities. The perception is that conflict is generally bad for a team and it will inevitably bring the team down and cause them to spiral out of control and off track. So you can actually create constructive conflict. Instead of, instead of in fact, I think this is an interesting exercise. So if you perceive as a manager that there's going to be a conflict on a certain issue, um, what you could do is say, um, let's say apples and oranges, something easy to wrap your mind around. You like apples, you like oranges. So what I could do, the natural thing would be for you guys to construct a legitimate, a logical argument for why oranges are better. And you do that for why apples are better. But I could actually do the reverse and make you argue for oranges and make you argue for apples and try to see the pros and cons of each, you know. Uh, and so, or I could say, I want you to do both. I want you to give me a two and four apples and a two and four, a two and against, you know, oranges and apples. And that way, when we come to talk about it in a logical conflict debate, you can see both sides. You can see your opponent's logic, or, you know, for doing that. And so... Like, you can actually manage conflict is the point I'm getting to, especially if you can anticipate it. <clears throat> when I, when I have conflict all the time with my house, my kids, you know, and there's like, you know, I can anticipate, like, if I get one, like, if I, let's, let's use crackers as an example. Let's say I buy 10 crackers and I give my daughters each five crackers each. They're going to look at these crackers and one of them's going to say, there's more peanut butter on hers than mine, you know, or this cracker has got a little chip on it. It's, you know, I'm surprised they don't weigh them. You know, it's, it's just like, so as a manager, you've got to anticipate conflict and try to prevent them from spiraling out of control. Mining is a technique that can be used in teams that tends to avoid conflict. This technique requires that one of the team members assumes the role of a miner of conflict, someone who extracts buried disagreements within the team and sheds the light of day on them. So that's what I'm talking about is conflict management is, is actually... Try, um, have you ever seen firemen start a fire in the forest? You ever seen them doing that? They're, they're, actually, they're actually burning off uh, underbrush before it becomes out of control. So they're managing, they're doing a managed burn. And that is a technique that firefighters use to prevent widespread forest fires. In fact, if you've ever watched them try to manage large-scale large fires, 
what they'll do is they'll go a certain amount of distance out from that and they'll create a, per, a burn barrier. They'll go ahead and burn a track around it so that's the fire won't have any more fuel when it gets to that. It'll have nowhere else to go because there's a burn barrier there and that the fire's already ex is used all the fuel. And so that's what mining is doing in a, in a management sense. We're actually going in and we're doing a pre-burn to manage that conflict. And so, like, if you've got to deliver critical news to somebody, it's good for you to go ahead and anticipate what those challenges are going to be and how you can manage those challenges, you know, or reservations. If somebody gives you a rebuttal or a reservation, you want to think about ways that you can manage that. And so responses to conflict. So constructive, destructive, active, and passive. Active and passive means active is being, is managing it. Passive is just kind of letting it go. Constructive is positive and destructive is obviously negative. And so an active constructive is perspective taking, creating solutions, expressing emotions and reaching out. Passive constructive is reflective thinking, delay responding and adapting. Destructive and active, winning, displaying anger, demeaning others, uh, retaliating. That's active and destructive. Passive and destructive is avoiding, yielding, hiding emotions and self-criticizing. And so, Generally, you want to stay in that top left quadrant. Be active. Be constructive. It takes just as much energy to be constructive than destructive. It really does. It takes just as much energy to talk. It actually probably talks less energy to talk calmly and rationally than it does to yell, scream, and, and wave your hands around, right? Like, I understand people get emotional and upset. It's, it, it happens to me. I'm an emotional you know, human being here, but... Uh, we need to try to manage our emotions and be calm and rational in our approach. And so we've talked quite a bit this semester about diversity. It's a word that's very commonly used today. But the importance of diversity in building diverse teams can sometimes get lost in the normal process of doing business. So um, this is actually the last part of the chapter. I kind of went faster than I thought I was going to go. But let's talk about diversity a little bit more before we break up for today. So what does diversity mean? I know I've talked about it quite a bit already this semester. Like the, the differences in like, the way people think or right. the group of people. Yeah, so somebody was paying attention. Yeah. What do you remember what I talked about with layers of diversity? So there was three levels. So surface. And then below that is what? Deep level. And then there's one more. What? I can't remember. It's okay. It. So, diversity. So, surface level is things that we can see, right? But that's not always, you know, we, we have, you know, I have to like, kind of forgive I don't know there's a lot of political correctness out there today and like humans are just these we, we have evolved over time to categorize things in our brain you know and so like when we see somebody new for the first time our brains go through this really quick subconscious process of categorizing that individual and so we will quite you know like the first thing we do is assess is this person dangerous you know like do I feel safe to to want to be around this person, you know. As a parent, 
my safety like meter is always on. You know, do you feel this way when you take your child out in public? Like you're all, yeah, exactly. Like, um, it's so I shouldn't feel this way, but like we were walking around the store this weekend and I saw a video within the past year or two of knife attacks where uh, somebody was walking down the street and they cut a child's face with a knife. This little kid, they just slashed her face being a terrible person. I don't know why they would do that, something like that. And stuff like that scares me, you know, like, so every stranger, when I'm out in public, I'm constantly like, want to keep that child within arm's reach of me. And that child was within arm's reach of their parents. They just walk by and, and slash the child's face. So I'm constantly like, you know, kind of on high alert around, you know, with my kids. And my girls are at an age now where they want to kind of venture, you know, but I'm trying to kind of keep them tight because I said, you know, you just don't know. But I, I know most of it is, is being paranoid parenting, but uh, there is some legitimacy to it. But so surface, you know, we see somebody for the first time. We have to assess, is this person safe to be around? Do I feel comfortable talking to this person? And as a manager or professional, you've got to be able to convey, hey, I'm a safe person. I'm okay to talk to. Like, I love little children. I, I'm, I, I mean, I've got three kids myself, but... I like to talk to kids, but I have to be like, I saw a little girl this weekend and she waved at me and I waved back, but I'm not, I don't want to like go speak to her because I don't want to scare the parents, you know, Oh, there's this big guy talking to my kid. What's what, what's going on? You know? And so like, um, you just want to respect boundaries again. Right. But so surface can tell us things like, you know, do I feel safe around this person? Do I feel like, you know, I can engage with this individual um, and then we have these other diversity things like gender, race, uh, things that are pretty much surface observations. Um, the next layer down is that deep level. These are more things like belief systems, right? Ideologies, you know, is this person an ethical person, right? You know, is this person trustworthy? Can I, can I, can I trust them to have a key to the building or the business? Can I trust them with the cash box, you know? My wife uh, works at a medical clinic and uh, I don't know everybody out there, but I feel like it's a very professional and trustworthy, high-integrity place with good people that work there. That being said, within the past month, uh, something like $160 went missing out of a cash box. And the manager had to circulate that, hey, no questions asked. We just want that money turned back in. If you turn it back in, we're, no, we're not going to seek out you know, whoever took it. Right? To my knowledge, that money has not been turned back in. But, um, you know, that's something you can't see. That if when you hire somebody, nobody hires somebody thinking this person's going to rob me of 160 bucks or whatever. You just don't know. You don't know that somebody's going to be unethical or lie, cheat, and steal, right? Um, I actually, when I worked at Walmart, would watch cashiers. I hated this aspect of it. There was loss prevention at Walmart that watch all the cameras and stuff. And these guys love to catch bad guys. They love to catch people doing bad things. I hated it. Uh, it's not that I didn't want to catch people doing bad things, but I felt, I don't know, I just felt like there's a reason why these people are stealing, you know, like, I mean, like, and I'm not easy on, I, don't get me wrong, stealing is not good and I don't condone stealing, but I just, I just, I don't know, I felt like, uh, I just don't like catching people, you know, I think like, I feel bad for the person because they got caught. So like this one time we watched this cashier stealing money, stealing money out of register, and I'm wondering, you know, what's, what's the situation and why, why are they feel like they have to steal, you know? Uh, what in their minds has led them to be okay with stealing, right? 
And so we eventually had to get them and arrest them and then fire them from the company, you know. And I just, I just hate all that. I wish, you know, I could intervene and say, you know, please don't, just don't steal anymore, you know. Like, you know, I wish I could, like, help them get away from that, you know. So, so once again, these, these hidden things are things, that, so that's deep level, ethics and things like that, ideologies, belief systems. But hidden are things that people may not want to reveal to you, right? These are, uh, like, um, identity things that, you know, people might not share with people just because that's who they are and they don't feel like, you know, that's anybody's business, you know. So uh, it could be religion, could be sexual identity, things like that. So um, these are things that are just, you know, better left not being addressed in the workplace. So, All right. Um, any questions about anything we talked about about managing teams? I know that was a kind of a quick run through. Any comments? All right, guys, we'll take a time out here today and jump into Chapter 16 on Wednesday, okay? Thank you, guys. I'll see you then.